0: A new equation for switching on outcomes is here from PwC. It's human-led and tech-powered. It's PwC with Oracle, SAP, Salesforce, and Workday. It's PwC with Microsoft, AWS, and Google. Simplify your systems and amplify your results. Switch on outcomes with PwC and their alliances. Learn more at pwc.com. Bill
1: Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah for One More Morning. Well, we're going to talk about support for some extreme ideas and specifically talking about when politicians go to perhaps questionable rallies or take photos with those who have extreme ideas and why there are growing concerns about that. Stephanie Carvin is joining us now, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Uh, Well, there certainly has been no shortage when we're looking at whether it's some Canadian politicians, uh, other uh, countries' uh, politicians as well, uh, getting those photos or spending time with people that uh, perhaps do have extreme views. How concerning is it to seeing this and seeing this becoming more popular?
0: Well, I guess when I saw it, I... I It is concerning, I think, because just simply because um, the individual in question has, you know, downplayed his own ties uh, to like other extremists that have either joined onto his movement or who he's had engagement with. Um, So, for example, it's it's, it's James Topp, who uh, marched from uh, the West Coast all the way to Ottawa and is now um, apparently planning on moving on to Signal Hill in Newfoundland. And he has. you know uh, ties with you know he he's appeared on podcasts with um, the uh, the Platt Army podcast which is also affiliated with uh, Diagonal which is a movement that had individuals arrested in Coots, Alberta in during the convoy protests because they wanted to kill allegedly uh, twelve RCMP officers um, there were yesterday it was discovered that some of his organizers in Ottawa. Uh, have QAnon beliefs and have uh, you know, again, more far right ties, uh, and have been at like rallies uh where, you know, there've been right white, white supremacists and things like that. So um And this is an individual, uh, you know, Mr. Topp has never sought really to answer any of these questions. He's he's engaged with these people, um, you know, even on Canada Day rather than um, spending it with the people who are on the Hill protesting, uh, many of whom went to Ottawa to see him. He met with Randy Hillier, who is an Ontario MPP. Who is now affiliated, um, you know, he's, he's very much affiliated with the Diagon Movement, uh, has, uh, you know, appeared in, with, at many of their, their outings and events, uh, and ran for, uh, the Ontario People's Party, which is the Ontario equivalent of the People's Party of Canada. So, um, all this to say, uh, this, this was a choice made by Mr. Polyev. It's not clear to me what advantage he thought he would get. So, you know, did he do it because there was internal pressure within the Conservative Party, which, you know, particularly in in uh, the Prairie provinces uh, is seeing a surge of People's Party of Canada um, activity and interest and, and maybe threatening under, uh, those uh, MPs? Or is it that, you know, this is something he sincerely believes in? Um, And it's not clear what that is. He's been very cagey in subsequent interviews about why he decided to participate in this event. So uh, I, I I guess I have more questions than answers at this point.
1: And I, and I think a lot of people do have questions about this as well. But uh, in, in this scenario, so looking at uh, a conservative leadership candidate uh, in Pierre Polyev uh, meeting with Brian, with Brian Topp, uh, is it not kind of better, I, I suppose, that he's doing it? in. Oh, sorry, James Top, uh, is it James Top? yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> um, is, it, is it not kind of better that he's doing it in public and then leaving it up to, to people whether they want to support that or not or have an issue with it? Uh, at least it's out there rather than perhaps just have happening secretly or behind closed doors?
0: Well, I guess I wonder, I mean, it was interesting. I was going back um, uh, and I was looking in, in, you know, some of the books, uh, Canadian Political History, and I was looking at, um, there was a scenario where uh, there was a white supremacist in that 1981, and he was able to get, you know, nothing too big, but he became the treasurer of uh, an association of Toronto Federal Ridings, um and, and, you know, when, when Joe Clark found out about this and other conservative leaders found out about this, they were outraged, right? They, they immediately demanded his resignation, kicked him out of the party, said we want nothing to do with this. And uh, we're quite quick to kind of shut any of that kind of activity down. Um, and in this case, we're seeing more, you know, tolerance for these kinds of views and behaviors. Uh, We're seeing a lot of nodding towards um, a lot of the issues that animate people on maybe not the far right, but what we might call the fringe, right, or even the alt right, like uh, freedom of speech on campuses, which is often a a way of being able to say things that, um, you know, uh, you know, transphobic things, or uh, which is, which is definitely an issue within the convoy movement itself. Um, So, you know, there, there's definitely a flirtation here. I think, on some level, it gets it it becomes a risk simply because these groups, particularly groups associated with the convoy movement, have been engaging in increasingly not violent behavior, but um, what you would call like maybe more threatening behavior. Uh, For example, we know that judges that are overseeing trials of people associated with the convoy have been receiving death threats from people believed to be affiliated with the convoy movement. Uh, We know that libraries have been receiving threats, um, again, from the same characters because they've been hosting um, um, drag, you know, reading sessions uh, and and, and people are upset about that. But instead of, you know, protesting their, their threatening libraries. Uh, these are people who have threatened healthcare workers for months, uh, protested outside of hospitals, the home of healthcare care workers, uh, public health officials. So like I said, I, what concerns me is that by embracing this movement, you're embracing their tactics, right? Um, right. You, know, you, can, you can believe what you want, but this is a movement that has shown that it's willing to, to go beyond what we would consider normal democratic politics.
1: Right, and and then seeing these photos or seeing uh, these, these meetings and very public displays, then, is the concern that it, it legitimizes what, in some cases, like you're saying, is criminal behavior or is, is behavior that is quite threatening.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, like, you know, you can protest. Like, I'm not asking people to love Justin Trudeau, not by any means. Uh, but what concerns me from a threat perspective or a public order perspective is that, like I said, this is a movement that's shown that It doesn't really embrace the rule of law. It it, it has kind of lost faith in the democratic system. Uh, A lot of the organizers behind the convoy in February were people who wanted to overthrow the government and uh, basically say, we're going to appoint ourselves to a committee uh, with the Senate and the governor general, which is, you know, I I think I don't have to explain to your listeners that's not actually how how Canada works. Um, So it's like, I guess that's the scene. Like, are you giving these people legitimacy now they're going to come back and say and and they're not entirely wrong these people are disaffected they're upset they don't believe in politics we have to reach out to them in some way and i think there is a broader audience of people who are disaffected who do feel alienated and disenfranchised and things like that we do have to find a way to talk to these people to talk to these groups but i'm not sure James Top and the convoy is the, the, the vehicle to do that, because what they represent is not that conversation. They, are, they represent a kind of, um, they're not trying to convince people, they're trying to compel people to, to change the system through uh, having these kinds of convoys and events and things like this. And I think that's a very bad thing. And to embrace it is, is kind of dangerous in that way. All right. Uh, Stephanie Carvin, we'll leave it
1: there for today. But thanks so much for being with us and for joining the show this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. That is Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, just a reminder, if you are a Rogers customer, you may be dealing with some outages today. We've now heard from Rogers uh, sending out a tweet, although it's possible their customers aren't getting the information, saying we know how important it is for our customers to stay connected. We are aware of issues currently affecting our networks and our teams are fully engaged to resolve the issue as soon as possible. We will continue to keep you updated as we have more information to share share. So this is a pretty big outage. It is affecting cell phones as well as internet and debit payments right across the country. So talking about banking and other services as well, uh, the outage being described as massive and again, wireless cable and internet customers who are with Rogers right across uh, Canada. The outage uh, became apparent to many people early this morning. A lot of people waking up to the Well, the inability to use their phones and a bit of a safety concern as well. In some scenarios, people saying that they're not able to use 911 service or able to connect to 911 service because the cell phones simply are not working in any way, shape or form. That's also affecting FIDO customers if you are a FIDO customer as well. So no word yet. As to what has caused this outage, but the company, again, Rogers saying that they are working on it. Debit services are also impacted. So if you were wondering why your internet or things aren't working, if you're a Rogers customer, that would be wise. So we'll keep you updated if there are any updates on that service coming back. All right. We are going to talk a little bit more now about the Arrive Can app and some small changes made to the app and we now know it is going to be here for the foreseeable future, even though it was brought in as a tool to help track information and make sure people were following the rules in the beginning days of the pandemic. Well, Bianca Wiley is a technology expert, also a partner at Digital Public, and is here to talk a bit more about that. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know there are a lot of concerns about this, and people wondering why these little changes were made, and it's gone from being a pandemic resource tool to what's now being called part of modernizing the customs system, the customs process when entering Canada. Uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that it looks like the ArriveCAN app is here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future?
3: Yeah, a few things. Um, One of the things you mentioned is that this was stood up in 2020 as part of emergency powers, you know, like this is a significant move for the government to make a technology like an app mandatory. And so at that point in time, it didn't have to be an app, right? Like we're collecting information like we do at the borders, we could do it through a kiosk, we could do it through a form. So major concern is that it's mandatory. And secondarily, Um, At this point in time, the Public Health Agency of Canada really needs to be out here explaining why they're using their emergency power, you know, to mandate an app at an airport or a border um, when some people don't have smartphones. Uh, It's clearly a scary thing at this point in time to be, you know, traveling during a pandemic. So those are some of my concerns. And I think fundamentally this could be voluntary and it should be voluntary at the bare minimum. This is not something that should be mandatory. The rationale isn't there.
1: Uh, and i th- i was thinking that as well even hearing some of the justification for this uh, from the from the minister saying oh but this is a part of modernizing the process and it will speed things up at uh, the border speed things up for people coming into canada and it it's that struck me as well thinking well if somebody doesn't want to do it though is it not your choice whether or not you want to go through the expedited process and use an app
3: and exactly. And the thing is that this switch that they're making here to update it with this different purpose is not a public health purpose. And we had a voluntary app before the pandemic to do this border declaration piece and people weren't using it. And so for me, this we we really need to always bring it back to the, the beginning and the rationale, which is a public health emergency powers rationale. And so if that isn't there, then this needs to be dropped as a mandatory app. And we, we just can't confuse data with apps. Like we, if, if we need this information, okay, but we don't have to collect it through an app. And I want to add one more thing, which is that as we can see through what just happened, when this app was launched, there was no governance standards put into place in terms of how do we manage change? How do we know that it's working? How do we know when we decommission it? And, and I really, I know we're this far into the pandemic, but look, We know ventilation and masking. Why aren't we using emergency powers to force investment on things that are working? I'm in Ontario in the seventh wave of the pandemic. We're putting $25 million into this app. I mean, we we just generally need to step back and understand what are we prioritizing? What are we investing in? And I want us to know at the border, there's no other, this is a monopoly of a situation, So we need to have choices in how we move through there. I learned about this app because I had a family member who doesn't have a smartphone. They were scared. I have another friend who moved through the border, didn't know what they consented to. So, you know, like it's just the idea that this is inevitable or that that efficiency is fine for everybody to have to, you know, take on. Um, No, it should be a choice. If you think it's great, okay, like you can have that path. And if you don't, you don't like it, you're uncomfortable. There has to be another one. So we can say for sure, this should be voluntary, and we definitely need to have some kind of governance around it, you know?
1: And what about transparency as well? I know there's been issues about even finding the companies that developed the app, and anytime you give over information, wanting to know where is it being stored, is it being safely stored? What about the, the transparency and the safety issues?
3: So in this case... This is closed proprietary code, so no one can look into it. No one knows exactly how it's working. We're taking this at face value in terms of its security application for the purpose. So it's an issue because not only is the code closed, the governance around all of this is closed. And we need to understand that the fact the safety minister and the transportation ministers are speaking instead of the Public Health Agency of Canada which is the one that mandated this, like, that's wrong. We need to hear from if if this is mandatory, necessary, proportional, if all of these risks that we're talking about are here, and there's no governance, this better be doing something very important. I don't think that that has been shared with us as the public. So what you're raising is a concern. And then it sort of snowballs into all kinds of other questions. Where's the oversight? who's managing this, right? Like how how do we know how this is gonna be used in the future? We already saw them push an update and a change. So these are a ton of questions that relate to a closed, you know, lack of transparency and lack of accountability from the emergency power rationale. So we really, we got a left, you know, there's a lot going on here that is not proper from a democratic governance perspective.
1: And like you said too, not everybody has a smartphone and to mandate it to, that you have to use an app to enter your own country does seem, uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, a bit heavy-handed.
3: It's super heavy-handed. And if in 2020, when this was launched, I'm really glad you bring this up. In 2020, because this speaks to the capacity in our governments, they knew that there's no equity in this mandate. You know that there are people who don't have smartphones. You know there are people that don't have access to the internet in an easy way. So that decision was made in the face and despite knowing these technologies are always accelerants of inequity. That is not a question. That's not a maybe. That's a for sure. So that was decided even when it was launched that that would be ignored. And that's a big problem because public services, listen, if there's anyone who has a mandate to serve everybody, it's the government. That's what they're supposed to do. So you cannot make it so these things are inequitable in in how our public services are accessed.
1: It's wrong. And one other final question. What about the, the efficiency of it too? Because even looking at some of the numbers, if we go back to when it was first introduced, uh, the, the government is saying it was a huge success, but it's also showing there were about 40% of people that tested positive. They couldn't be reached. It certainly wasn't a, 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 a hugely effective method of making sure people followed quarantine rules in the beginning. And, and, and it, doesn't, it doesn't appear that this really helped government track the people it said it was going to?
3: Yeah, this is such an important question, because I think we have seen through the pandemic, efficiency cannot be the sole value that we build a society around, right? That I, I move faster. What, what's my experience? Never mind everybody else. So even if this was a highly efficient process, which does not appear to be the sounds from a lot of people who've experienced it, That's not the only factor that we need to consider in our society. And so we need to know sometimes if it takes a bit longer, but it makes sure it's equitable, that's the right thing. If it takes a bit longer and people feel safe and they they don't feel, you know, they're not freaking out because they're not, you know, it was already scary and now there's this thing happening, that quality of experience, it really matters. So even if it was highly efficient, what we've seen in the pandemic, public health is a collective undertaking. So even if you are comfortable with this, you need to ask yourself that you, you, you are part of defining the experience for every single person on these lands, right? So I think we need to say there's efficiency, sure, okay, but what else do we care about? And we care about equity, and we care about other elements in our society. So let's not be driven down this path of me, 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 fast, better, you know, faster, better, my phone. Um, that That's not how we survive collectively. It just, we've seen it in the pandemic. It's not, it, that's not society.
1: All right, uh, Bianca, thank you so much for your time and joining us to talk about this today. We'll leave it there, but thanks so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. Bianca Wiley, technology expert and partner at Digital Public.
2: This is Mornings with Simi. Red Baron's new fully loaded hand toss style pizza is so full of toppings. Hold on there, partner. That there pizza is big enough for the both of us. With a half pound of toppings and a soft, chewy crust. It sure is. Problem is, though, this town ain't. Introducing the Red
4: Baron fully loaded hand toss style pizza. Share something awesome. This is your invitation to plug into a lineup of Lexus electrified vehicles built at the intersection of performance and design with a range of options to fit any lifestyle. A feeling this electric is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the elevation of electrification and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
1: Inventory may vary by dealer. About what led to that deadly shootout at a Saanich bank. As we know, six police officers were injured during that shooting and the two suspects, twin brothers, were both killed. Joining us to talk a little bit more about how we try and figure out what happened, perhaps what the motivation was, is Dr. Rob Gordon, a professor of criminology at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being with us this morning.
2: My pleasure.
1: When you look at a case like this or when you look at something like this happening, which thankfully is rare uh, to see this unfold at a bank in B.C., what goes through your mind looking at it uh, from a kind of a criminologist's point of view?
2: Well, obviously, um, motivation uh, is an important factor, although like many other bank robberies, it's fairly self-evident because the purpose of a bank robbery is to get hold of some money. Um, Now, whether this applies in this particular case or not uh, is not clear yet. We've got um, very little reliable information on the ground uh, that's being made public by the police, for example. So you have to proceed uh, with a great deal of caution. I know there's been a lot of speculation amongst um, journalists about, about why this happened and so on and so forth. I would just caution people to be to wait until such time as the three reviews that are underway right now um, are completed. And I don't think it'll be long before we get some answers. So those reviews, first of all, you've got an ongoing uh, island major crime investigation. It's not finished because there are a number of questions that are being asked, including um, questions about accomplices uh and also questions about the firearms that are used now that review is likely to be uh fairly opaque uh because crime investigations uh, tend to involve um sensitive materials so we may not get an awful lot of information from that major crime investigation but the second Uh, review I think is going to be very useful and that is the review undertaken by the independent investigation office which is looking at uh, and has a responsibility for looking at how and why the police got involved in this shootout. Um, Now that is that is going to give us a lot of information. Uh, Generally uh, the results of those IIO reviews are transparent. You can get the information uh, online from their office. Uh, I took a quick look at it uh, yesterday, uh, and already there's some, you know, shreds of information there that, that you. They're, they're, they're obviously in an active investigation situation, so they're not going to give out very much right now, and that's appropriate. Um, and thirdly, uh, the coroners. Uh, Going to be involved in this, already involved in this, because the coroner is responsible for the um, uh, for the deceased and investigating uh, those kinds of uh, events. Um, hopefully, they'll be looking at the interpersonal side uh, of the event, so the relationship between the two brothers and uh, and you know what was going on in their lives. Um, and I hope that that will include uh, toxicology tests um, on both uh, both brothers to see what, if any, drugs they were taking. And I think that's going to be a key factor. Um, and uh, that will be public. Um, and then BMO, the Bank of Montreal will be doing some sort of uh, review, uh, as often happens with the uh, crimes involving major organizations like this, they'll be looking at what kind of problems arose for their security side. Now, hopefully, all of this will be coordinated and will be made public by the Ministry of Public Safety and Sister General. I'm hoping that Mike Farnworth uh, takes some responsibility here for ensuring this coordination between these uh, buckets of information, if he doesn't, then you know I rather fear we're going to be left picking over the traces, and that's that could be a problem.
1: And how much of an impact, or how important do you think it is, looking at the background, or, or looking at leading up to what happened in that bank? Uh, certainly, there have been comparisons and some postings of uh, that alluded to the the North Hollywood Bank of America robbery uh, back in the '90s. Uh, I know you've talked about comparisons as well uh, with with the the um, the other shootings or the the deaths that took place in uh, BC in 2019, uh, the Briar Schmigel and Cam McLeod. Uh, How important is it to to draw those comparisons?
2: Well, I don't think at this stage uh, either of those events are terribly helpful um, uh, for understanding what happened last week. Um, But as a general rule, um, there are some bits and shreds of information that inform us on a larger scale uh, and and lead to... um, Possible remedial actions that can be taken. Um, there's still a lot of mystery surrounding uh, the suicides of the uh, of the two friends in, in Manitoba um, following their shooting spree. Um, the the police came up with uh, useful information, and of course, one of the things that they had were um, were the uh, electronic uh, re- re- records of the of the young men um, confessing to what they'd done and trying to explain uh, what they had done, but there, it's very it's very weak. Um, however, that, that's there, and I'm hoping that um, that when the uh, reviews are completed, particularly the Ireland Major Crime Unit. Uh, investigations completed. They'll they'll pro- provide some information about what was on the social media sites that the uh, the, the two brothers uh, were using. There's going to be a just an absolute bundle of information there if it's carefully analysed. So you know that th- these are things that are going to come along, but we have to be patient. None of this will happen quickly, um, nor should it happen quickly. There is no rush now uh we know who did what and uh, we're just now curious about how these things tie into larger issues um you know and i i don't think that there's any reason for the public to be fearful um and look over their shoulder at every pair of young men uh who go in, and uh into the woods with uh, with rifles to go hunting um you know that it, these are incidents that have happened Um, But the frequency is not great. So, you know, we've got to get some perspective on this.
1: All right. Well, certainly, like you said, uh, there are several investigations taking place uh, and uh, patience is key in in trying to find those answers. Uh, Rob Gordon, we'll leave it there for this morning. But thank you, as always, for your time.
2: You're, You're welcome, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Thanks for being with us so on this Friday morning. Well, yesterday we saw the official groundbreaking marked the start of construction for a new five-lane Steveston interchange in Richmond. This will eventually be a part of the replacement project for the Massey Tunnel. Joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Rob Fleming, BC's Transportation Minister. Minister, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.
1: Uh, Can you talk a little bit about this interchange? So the groundbreaking uh, was held yesterday. When are commuters and and people there actually going to start seeing uh, the major construction?
4: A little later this year. Uh, So it's going to start this year and it's going to be completed in 2025. So there may be a substantial completion date in advance of that, which we'll let you know about. But uh, basically, it's going to take a two-lane interchange that's 60 years old to does not work Um, it spills back and queues up so long uh, that it it interferes with the performance of highway 99 Um, so it's a big problem making a left turn uh, onto the highway to go north uh, is a huge problem as well so uh, five lanes as well as for the first time um, pedestrian and, and cycling connections across highway 99 which is if you think about it, it's really important for richmond i mean we're trying to Solve this regional congestion problem but we've always had this local quality of life problem that's bisected by a major highway and you know people like to go to farmers markets they like to connect from one neighborhood to another in Richmond. but this um this interchange has been uh, making life miserable uh, and an impediment to do that so it's going to be it's going to be good new infrastructure and it really is phase one of the uh, whole new eight-lane uh, toll-free toll replacement that the government is moving forward with
1: Right. And and certainly anybody who's been uh, stuck in traffic uh, in the current configuration knows uh, how frustrating that can be. Uh, Do Mm -hmm. do you get the the frustration, though, with people looking at this with the groundbreaking for the uh, interchange, thinking uh, had the bridge gone ahead, it would be closer to a groundbreaking for a new crossing?
4: Well, I think the mayor of Richmond said it very well. Um, And indeed, the previous government had to acknowledge that they had pushed the project that the local governments did not want for very valid reasons um and i think also when people look at the, the, their number one issues today is, uh, are the economy and the cost of living so the other government would have kept tolls on the Port man they would have imposed tolls on this bridge and that's another 1502 grand out of families pockets so no the business model and the imposition of that Mega bridge, which would have been one of the largest structures of its kind on the entire continent of North America, even though we are certainly by no means a mega region compared to other parts of, of this continent, um, was 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 wrong. Uh, so we're on the right track now. And of course, we promised in 2017 that we would we would do this, that we would have a second look. And we worked with Metro Vancouver. We got near unanimous recommendation with them. We're working with First Nations. It was great to have Chief Wayne Sparrow with us. Uh, yesterday. And um, and that's the way forward, is that kind of partnership. So, no, we think we've got the right solution now. It's going to be toll-free. And yesterday marked uh, a milestone where we're getting on with it. And the interchange will help the performance of the highway in the, in, in the interim. And the new tunnel, of course, will have some fantastic features, including bus rapid transit technology.
1: Uh, so the new interchange then, in hopes that it will be in operation in 2025, so it's going to be in operation mm-hmm. for a full five years before the tunnel is replaced?
4: That's right, yeah. And there's some other improvements we're doing um, on Highway 99. uh, We're doing a bus-on-shoulder paving lane, so advantaging the travel time of public transit. There'll be more direct connections with Bridgeport Station to use the Canada line. So there's some interim improvements before the main tunnel uh, is replaced with with a new tunnel that is twice the size and has... um, also has active transportation features for the first time that you'll be able to cycle or walk beneath the tunnel, use things like Dee's Park, and uh, and of course, having uh, two dedicated lanes for rapid bus is going to be a real game-changer game to ensure that congestion doesn't creep back uh, in the future decades ahead.
1: Uh, how can you ensure that, though? Because even when you say twice the size, but it's not really twice the capacity. When you look at the way it is right now with counterflow, it is with three lanes when when it flips over. So how can you assure residents and people that use that route that we're not going to see congestion in the future?
4: Yeah, when that counterflow is on, though, it's really like two and a bit because you have an inefficient third lane that drivers are trying to sometimes Switch lanes; it slows down traffic. So they're not free-flowing, productive lanes, if I can put it that way. And You've also got public transit stuck in the same reduced lane configuration. It also creates havoc on the other side, where you're down to one lane. Um, so it, you know, the the, uh, the current tunnel uh, it was great in its day, and and for 1959 it was pretty advanced technology. But its, its day is long overdue, and uh, and the eight-lane tunnel we've done. Tremendous studies there, and we're going to have a public office uh, available for people to look uh, at uh, at the traffic studies, at the features of the project, at the different milestones that are coming ahead that I would encourage everyone to go to. And I'll certainly give you the information about those opportunities um, when we open that to the public.
1: Sure. Uh, so, sorry, what do you mean, two in a bit? I, I get what you're saying. And yes, if you're on the side where it's down to one lane, it can be gridlock and it can be frustrating. But when yeah. the third lane's open, I mean, it is a third lane
4: there's a third lane but you've got people trying to get off the highway for example to Steveston and you've got a lot of people doing lane changes that slows traffic that's creating uh, different patterns than you would if you had an additional lane and and fixing the supportive interchanges in the manner that we're doing um that's that's one of the problems and the backup queuing onto highway 99 is encountered not too long after you get off um get through the tunnel. So it's not really three lanes in the, in, the, in the way that we would think of three straight ahead lanes that, that function and flow freely. It's, it's, it's got things to watch out for and it's got people trying to make different movements.
1: All right. Uh, getting back to the interchange and with the construction starting, uh, are you concerned at all that, that? I mean, whenever there's construction, that does slow things down. Obviously, there needs to be mm-hmm. a space for that to happen. Is that going to create more gridlock in the short term while that construction gets underway?
4: Yeah, we'll have we'll have more to say about um, when we when we have night work, for example, uh, which will have the most aggressive kind of traffic management, or restrictions that we need. It's its usually the, like the podium structures that you have to put up that you have to um, have sort of the most heavy traffic intervention, but we are going to uh, make sure that the 99 because it's such an important corridor, is uh, impeded as little as possible, and the new structure is going to be adjacent to the current one, so we will build uh, and then switch over and then build again, and then we will have the full five lanes. So it's the way the project is being staged uh, takes into account Um, how to do this as seamlessly as possible. We've got some really good engineering ideas that are behind this project. Uh,
1: There are concerns as well about kind of going back to square one, and that means the environmental assessment for the the, uh, tunnel project to go forward. Uh, What do you say to concerns about that taking perhaps longer than anticipated and delays in the project?
4: Hasn't been a problem so far. We're in the EA process now. Uh, We're close to ending the public comment period. Um, There was a lot of work done in the uh, CODL review, which recommended the eight-lane immersed tube tunnel technology uh, that uh, utilized uh, different environmental studies, riparian studies for the river, for example, and uh, all the things that the Environmental Assessment Office will look at. So it's on course to get a certificate to move forward as a project, and these are opportunities to, to look at the challenges and to figure out a way uh, with uh, uh, scientific experts uh, weighing in on on how to uh, make sure that the the project leaves a really lasting positive legacy to the Fraser River and the health of salmon ecosystems and that's that's really why we do these things.
1: All right Minister Fleming we'll leave it there for this morning. Thank you so much though for joining us and talking more about this.
4: My pleasure thanks for having